Welcome to the Love and Marriage Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that offer insights on dating and marriage. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. In January of 1972, after eating at a nice restaurant and attending the Osmonds in concert, uh, and they were very popular back then, I asked my wife to marry me. She said no. (laughs) A little over a month later, as I was walking her home from church, she said, Well, are you going to marry me, or am I going to have to get a job? The job opportunities in the state of Wyoming were not great back then. Uh, East Sinclair, Lightning Flats, and Dull Center uh, were the three opportunities that she'd looked at the year, the, the week before. I began looking much better. She had, very wisely, not accepted my invitation too quickly and been careful to make sure she'd chosen the right man. She understood President Hinckley's counsel. This is the most important decision of your life, the individual whom you marry. Marry the right person at the right place at the right time. Well, where is the right place? When is the right time? And who is the right person? Fortunately, President Hinckley and others have given us inspired counsel concerning these questions, and over 60 years of research in the social sciences adds another witness to their counsel. While the counsel I'm going to share with you today is primarily for unmarried individuals, much of what I say can help married individuals also strengthen, continue to strengthen their marriages. The right place is, of course, the temple. President Hinckley said, there is no substitute for marrying in the temple. It is the only place under the heavens where marriages can be solemnized for eternity. Don't cheat yourself, don't cheat your companion, don't shortchange your lives. A person committed to to temple marriage must then ask themselves, whom should I marry? How do I identify the right person for me? Well, it seems like everyone has advice uh, for people considering marriage. For example, the, the rock group, the Beatles, that you've all heard of from my generation saying, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. Newsstand magazines claim that good communication is really all you need. And television and film media seem to shout, Find someone who is good-looking, someone who really turns you on. Then you'll be happy. We actually have a great deal of counsel from better sources than the Beatles, magazines, and television and films. The words of the Savior in the scriptures and the teachings of inspired ancient and modern prophets set us on the right path. This divine and prophetic counsel, supported by over 60 years of research on premarital predictors of later marital quality and stability, will help us know. Let's look then at what the scriptures and general authorities teach about spouse selection, and then I want to offer as a second witness the results of research on premarital phenomena that influence later marital success. But first, I need to make two things clear about what is meant by the right person. First, we sometimes get led astray by movies, by plays, and fiction, and by the idea that there is a one and only somewhere out there with whom we made some kind of covenant to marry in the pre-existence, holding hands and singing as we parted. Um, So, finding a mate is simply a matter of waiting for some enchanted evening, 
locking eyes across a crowded room, heading off hand in hand to the closest temple, probably singing the rest of the score of South Pacific together, <laughs> and then living happily ever after. Now, no matter how romantic this idea is, it is not supported by prophetic counsel. President Kimball said this, soulmates are fiction and an illusion, and while every young man and young woman will seek with all diligence and prayerfulness to find a mate with whom life can be most compatible and beautiful, yet it is certain that almost any good man and any good woman can have happiness and, su and a successful marriage if both are willing to pay the price. Evidently, seeking for a mate is not a matter of waiting for that one and only to walk by and grab you. Second, one of the most important principles we learn from the scriptures to help us choose an eternal companion is articulated by the Savior in Matthew, in chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Elder Neil A. Maxwell spoke more specifically to those families, to those in families, including those in the courtship stage, when he said, quote, if the choice is between reforming other church members, including fiancés, spouses, or children, and ourselves, is there really any question about where we should begin? The key is to have our eyes wide open to our own faults and partially closed to the faults of others, not the other way around. The imperfections of others never releases us from the need to work on our own shortcomings." End of quote. Thus, as you think about the prophetic counsel and the research I will now discuss on choosing a spouse, you need first to apply the ideas to yourself and before you can then appropriately critique another's rightness for you. The first quality many young people look for in a potential spouse is someone with whom they can fall in love, which often means someone with whom, for whom they feel a strong physical attraction. While love is more than physical attraction, to a potential spouse, that's not bad. Indeed, Elder Bruce McConkie has said, the right person is someone for whom the natural and wholesome and normal affection that should exist does exist. Then he went on to add, it is someone who is living so that he or she can go to the temple of God and make the covenants that we make there. Being in love and attracted to a person, of course, is a good start, but clearly not enough. President Gordon B. Hinckley and Elder Richard G. Scott have recently suggested several other factors we should keep in mind. Choose a companion of your own faith. You are most likely to be happy, said President Hinckley. He continued, choose a companion you can always honor, you can always respect, one who will compliment you in your own life, one to whom you can give your entire heart, your entire love, your entire allegiance, your entire loyalty. Elder Richard G. Scott suggested several what he called essential attributes that bring happiness as we look for a, a potential spouse. These attributes are a deep love of the Lord and his commandments, a determination to live them, one that is kindly understanding, forgiving of others, and willing to give of self, 
with a desire to have a family crowned with beautiful children and a commitment to teach them the principles of truth in the home. Over 60 years of research suggests several factors that both witness and complement the attributes suggested by President Hinckley and Elder Scott. That research suggests what my colleague Dr. Jeff Larson has called the marriage triangle that we need to look at as we choose a spouse. These are the individual attributes and core values of a person. Second, the quality of the relationship we are about to build with the person. And third, the person's past and present circumstances. Let's consider each of these. First, we need to know a lot about the person we are thinking of marrying. As Elder Scott notes, the beliefs the person have about family life matter, and research confirms this. The research shows that the more the person values marriage and family life, the better the marriage will be. President Hinckley admonishes us to choose a person we can honor, respect, and give our whole heart, love, allegiance, and loyalty to. The research shows that that kind of person will have a healthy sense of self-respect, maturity, self-control, and good mental and emotional health. President Hinckley further suggests you choose a person who will compliment you. And Elder Scott says our choice should be a person that is kindly understanding and forgiving of others. Thus, we need to find a person not only of good character, but a person with whom we can have a good relationship. Two hallmarks of a good relationship, of a good premarital or marital relationship for that matter, that church leaders have stressed are love and communication. These two things help couples solve problems, resolve differences, and increase agreements on important issues. President Spencer W. Kimball helped a couple on the verge of marriage with this counsel about love. He said, The love of which the Lord speaks is not only physical attraction, but also faith, confidence, understanding, and partnership. It is devotion and companionship, parenthood, common ideals and standards. It is cleanliness of life and sacrifice and unselfishness. That kind of love never tires. This kind of love never tires nor wanes. It lives on through sickness and sorrow, through prosperity and privation, through accomplishment and disappointment, through time and eternity. Today, it is a demonstrative love, but in the tomorrows of 10, 30, 50 years, it will be a far greater and more intensified love, grown quieter and more dignified with the years of sacrifice, suffering, joy, and consecration to each other, to your family, and to the kingdom of God. Researchers have also found that the greater the love couples have in couples in the relationship have before they marry, the more successful their later marriage will be. However, one searcher reviewed dozens of studies on love and found that there is both immature love and mature love. Mature love, she declared, is the kind of love needed for successful marriage and family life. Love whether immature or mature, has three aspects. How love feels, how you think about love, and how you behave or act when in love. Notice how the characteristics of love, noted by President Kimball, mirror the characteristics that research has found to be the mature kind of love upon which stable, high-quality marriages and family life are built. But the love of which church leaders speak goes beyond the love even the best social science research has discovered. It includes, as President Kimball noted, 
a consecration to the partner, to family, and also to the kingdom of God. This kind of love is intimately connected to covenants and to our love of the Lord. It's a love that binds them to each other and to the Lord, as Elder Hafen said. This kind of love eschews the lust and selfishness of premarital sex and unlawful cohabitation. This kind of love cares more about the other person than about the self. The way we communicate in dating and courtship usually influences how our partner will feel about us and our relationship. Relationships are established upon the comfort and trust created by sincere communication. Research notes that positive communication, practice in dating and courtship, increases the likelihood of greater commitment, better conflict resolution, and more love between partners in their marriage. Good communication begins with a righteous heart. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh, said the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, communication from a selfish heart is generally just manipulation. Elder Marvin J. Ashton adds, If we would know true love and understanding one for another, we must realize that communication is more than sharing of words. It is the wise sharing of emotions, feelings, and concerns. It is the sharing of oneself totally. Well, besides checking out a person's character and your ability to create a good couple relationship with them, you need to also consider past and present family relationships. President David O. McKay taught, <clears throat> in choosing a companion, it is necessary to study the disposition, the inheritance, the training of the one with whom you are contemplating making life's journey. Research supports President McKay's counsel. Good family environments and family relationships tend to lead to good quality marriages by the children. Poor family environments and family relationships often result in poor marriages by the children from these homes. Young adults from divorced families, for example, may experience more depression and anger and have trust and commitment issues as a result of the trauma of the parental divorce. Some individuals, whether their parents divorced or not, may have been exposed to poor models of communication and conflict resolution in their families. Individuals from families that were emotionally cold and distant, chaotic, dangerous, unpredictable, detached, full of conflict or were addictions or violence were chronic problems may need special help in overcoming such an upbringing. However, one whose family background is less than perfect must never feel that he or she is damaged goods and should never and can never have a, a good marriage. Nor should such a person be automatically eliminated from another's pool of eligible spouses. We're not doomed to suffer the consequences of our parents' iniquities under the third and fourth generation. In fact, that very scripture that warns of wickedness being passed on unto the third and fourth generation also shows the way out of a troubled family background. Doctrine and Covenants 124.50, for example, tells us that the iniquities of the fathers will be visited upon the heads of the children, quote, so long as they, the children, repent not and hate me, close quote. Thus, repentance and loving the Lord frees us from the sins of our parents. What is most important is that the person who has turned from the wicked traditions of the parents and is striving to keep the Lord's commandments. Now when it comes to determining the right time to get married, at least two questions need to be asked and answered. 
First, when is the right time of life to get married? And then secondly, how much time should I spend in the process of going from first date to chosen mate? Let me briefly address these issues. <clears throat> there are many apocryphal stories here at BYU of people uh, dating and within a couple of weeks being at the front door of the temple. Um, I've not known of any of those, some of you may. But let me just share with you a little bit of what my research, uh, U.S. research and also some of my research here at BYU has shown. Years of research suggest that marriage has the fewest risks of later problems when people marry in their 20s. Marrying in your teens or into your 30s simply increases the risk factors associated with poor marital quality and stability. Besides the fact that by then the brethren are getting awfully bald and don't have any, anyway. <clears throat> President Harold B. Lee helps us understand when the best time in life is to marry. He said this, now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to urge you young men to get married, uh, to marry too early. I think therein is one of the hazards of today's living. We don't want a young man to think of marriage until he is able to take care of a family, to have an institution of his own, to be independent. He must make sure he has found the girl of his choice. Now, now listen to this. this. He's talking just to men, but listen how he's giving you again some counsel not only on when to get married, but what factors you need to take into account. He's found the girl of his choice, for you sisters, found the, the man of her choice. They have gone together long enough that they know each other, and that they know each other's faults and still love each other. Please don't misunderstand we, what we are saying, but brethren, think more seriously about the obligations of marriage for those who bear the holy priesthood at a time when marriage should be the expectation of every man who understands his responsibilities." End of quote. Sisters also need to wait until they are mature enough to assume the responsibility of a wife and mother without waiting too long while pursuing less important things. Well, how much time does it take to move through this process of finding the right person and preparing to marry him or her in the temple? Two research projects involving largely BYU students show that they believe or have found what they believe or have found to work for them. These two studies show that the average time from first date to temple marriage is about nine to ten months. I guess kind of September to April sort of stuff. <laughs> some couples move faster, some considerably slower. On average, three to four months of that eight to nine months is the engagement. In a study of LDS couples married eight years, and in another study of single BYU students saying what the ideal length of an engagement should be, the vast majority think that three or four months is about right. Now please don't take these as goals that you must meet. Um, it may take a little longer for whatever reasons, it may be a little shorter. But what the brethren and the research do seem to suggest is that you can go too fast or too slow through the process. There are, for example, discernible stages that most couples need to go through on the path from first date to chosen mate. We might call these stages the ABCs of courtship, and there are certain tasks you need to accomplish in each stage. The A is the attraction and acquaintance stage. Research on LDS students by my colleague Dr. Craig Osler in Religious Education shows that initial attraction among Latter-day Saints usually consists of physical attraction, or attraction to the person's personality and or attraction to their perceived spiritual qualities. 
LDS young people are most able to move from this initial attraction to acquaintance and to start a new relationship according to Brother Osler's research if both uh, the male and the female are seeking, sending, and receiving what he called interest cues and attraction strategies. Thus, <laughs> relationships generally develop only when you are seeking to know if a person is interested, sending interest cues appropriately, and receiving back or understanding how to interpret the other's person interest in you or lack thereof. <laughs> one who is deficit in one or more of these processes finds that relationships tend not to develop and one or both partners can become very frustrated. In Dr. Osler's research, he found that the females especially understood what they needed to do. They, uh, and they were willing to teach roommates who were frustrated. Um, and they said, what you do is you touch him on the arm, you look him in the eye, you laugh at his jokes. <laughs> and within days, he'll be asking you out. Well, many found that to be true. When the seeking and sending and receiving is done in sync, in other words, both people are seeking, sending, and receiving uh, the same messages, the couple then moves to the B or the build-up stage. At this point, the couple gets to know each other and checks out the other person to see if he or she is the right person for them. Research by two of my master's students, Emery Pugmire and Nancy McLaughlin, has shown that generally speaking, LDS males and females move through this stage best when a friendship is developed, first, when both persons feel they are equal partners in the relationship, when their friendship happens much before, if any, physical involvement has occurred, and when both people are relaxed and not worrying about whether this particular relationship is the one and just kind of let things happen. If these things happen, then the couple is ready to move to the C stage, the stage of consolidation, continuation, and mutual commitment to the eternal relationship. President Hinckley has some counsel about this stage. He said this, I hope you will not put off marriage too long I do not speak as much to the young women as to the young men whose prerogative and responsibility it is to take the lead in this matter. Don't go on endlessly in a frivolous dating game. Look for a choice companion, one you can love, honor, and respect, and make a decision. We must finally make a decision, as President Hinckley says. In doing this, most Latter-day Saints want a spiritual confirmation that they are making a wise commitment. As you seek a spiritual confirmation, you need to keep at least five things in mind. First, be worthy to receive the inspiration you need. Elder Packer reminds us that if we desire, quote, the inspiration of the Lord in this crucial decision, we must live the standards of the church, close quote. Second, understand the difference, the balance between agency and inspiration. Elder Bruce McConkie said, we must make our own choices, and then we present the matter to the Lord and get his approving, ratifying seal. The experience of one young man illustrates what this is, uh, illustrates this. He said, there are two things in my life that I've always felt would be important, a career and marriage. Yet at the time, I didn't feel like I was getting a response. I prayed, Heavenly Father, this is so important. I need to know whether or not it is right. Then, toward the end of our courtship, I went to the temple. I was so frustrated because I wasn't getting an answer either way. 
After praying and waiting for an answer, I got frustrated and gave up. This was when the impression came to me. You already know the answer. Then I, then I realized that God had answered my prayers. The decision to marry Becky always made sense and felt right. I can see now that God had been telling me in my heart and, and in my mind that it was a good decision. And later, at the time of the ceremony, I had another confirmation that what I was doing was right. Third, seek multiple witnesses. The scriptures teach us that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. A spiritual witness can be confirmed a second or greater time at the altar in the temple, as noted above. In prayer by the Spirit again, in discussions with parents, a bishop, or a trusted friend, while partaking of the sacrament or in any number of circumstances. Fourth, learn to discern between inspiration, infatuation, desperation, and a desire to please others. Inspiration comes as explained above, when one is living worthy, when exercising agency and studying it out carefully, and when confirmed by multiple spiritual enlightenments and peaceful feelings. Infatuation is usually manifested by the immature love that I discussed earlier. That includes great anxiety, possessiveness, selfishness, clinging, and overdependence. Infatuation may be more likely with individuals who lack emotional and spiritual maturity. Now, desperation is often associated with social, social or cultural circumstances that create an atmosphere, at least in the person's mind, of now or never. Pressure from peers, family, and cultural norms may create a sense of desperation that leads to an unwise decision. All your former missionary companions are married, all your roommates are married, or whatever it might be. On the other hand, a desire to get away from an unpleasant family situation or fear of failure in school or work situations can cause someone to look desperately to marriage as a way out of the problem. On the other hand, pressures from peers, family, and cultural norms also may create a situation where you put off marriage for fear that others will think you're just a Molly Mormon or a Norman the Mormon who doesn't understand that marriage is old-fashioned and can ruin your career. Such pressures to marry or not marry often create fears and anxieties that speak so loudly in our minds that we cannot hear the still, small whisperings of the Spirit. Fifth, spiritual confirmation needs to come to both parties involved. When I uh, first returned from my mission, I was talking to one young lady uh, who had been attending school down here at BYU, and she told me this, first person account, so I assume it's true, that she went with a young man who, on the first date, was carrying a ring with him and offered it to her at that first date. Now, that was clear back in the 70s. Maybe we were different back then, but I hope that's uh, not happening very much now. Um, one needs to understand that a person needs not feel that he or she or a partner has to get married if he or she, the partner, receives the confirmation. Um, let me just read to you what Elder Oaks said. If the responsibility is outside the limits of stewardship, you know it is not from the Lord. You are not bound by it. I have heard of cases where a young man told a young woman she should marry him because he had received a revelation that she was to be his eternal companion. If this is true revelation, it will be confirmed directly to the woman if she needs to know. In the meantime, she is under no obligation to heed it. She should ask her for, seek her own spiritual guidance and make up her own mind. 
The man can receive revelation to guide his own actions, but he cannot properly receive revelation to direct hers. She is outside his stewardship. Now, not all relationships end in marriage, and rightly so. Therefore, we need to understand not only the ABCs of courtship, but also the D and the E stages of courtship. <laughs> the D, deterioration, and E, ending phases of relationship development, are possibly the most difficult to deal with. Relationships, of course, can deteriorate and end very quickly after only a few minutes of acquaintance <laughs> or at any stage of development. But breaking up a relationship that has grown toward a sense of interdependence and possible thoughts of marriage are particularly difficult to end. If it is right to break off a relationship, how can it be done so as to cause the least hurt? I believe the revelation given by the Lord to Joseph Smith and contained in Doctrine and Covenants 121 provides excellent counsel not only for strengthening but also ending a relationship. Especially helpful is the counsel contained in verses 41 through 44. And let me read those with you. You'll all uh, remember these. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love towards him whom thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee to be his enemy, that he may know that thy faithfulness is stronger than the cords of death. Verses 41 and 42 teach us that we should not attempt to continue a relationship by any unrighteous means. A partner should not be coerced into staying in a relationship, nor should we ever feel coerced. Furthermore, when a relationship should end, the principles articulated in verses 41 and 42 can be a guide for dealing with the hurt and emotions that may result. One may need to be very long-suffering, gentle, meek, and kind with the partner who does not understand or resist the change. The counsel given in verse, verses 43 and 44 may seem extreme, but when considered carefully is some of the best counsel we can get for ending a relationship. To reprove means to correct, and betimes means early on. Thus, when pure knowledge received by the Holy Ghost helps us understand that a relationship must end, we should correct the situation and the relationship quickly and not let it drag on. The word sharply can mean with clarity. Think of a sharp picture rather than with severity, as it is often interpreted. Thus, while being as loving and kind as we can, we should make it clear that the relationship is ending and why, rather than beating around the bush, hoping the partner will get the message. Again, this must be done in kindness and meekness and love unfeigned, recognizing that even if the partner has hurt us in some way, he or she is a beloved child of God who must be treated in a Christ-like manner. Now, if one is the breakee rather than the breaker, the same counsel applies. This partner you believe you love should not be coerced or forced in any way to continue if he or she does not want to continue. Even if the emotional hurt you feel is strong, you need to back off, not try to hurt the partner back in some way, and allow yourself time to heal. Breaking up is not the end of the world. Great learning and maturity can come from surviving a premarital breakup. 
If one initiates or goes through a breakup with as much Christ-like behavior and feelings as possible and allows himself or herself to be healed by the peace of the Spirit, that person may then move more readily onto a relationship, but not too quickly, mind you, that can result in an eternal marriage. The church and BYU have some wonderful resources to help you choose the right person, the right place, and the right time. Let me just note three of these. First, most institutes of religion and church universities will have a religion course numbered 234 entitled Preparation for Celestial Marriage. We have a similar course here at BYU. It is my understanding that a new student manual for this course is coming out this fall, and I'd encourage you to, uh, to take one of those courses. Secondly, the Family Study Center at Brigham Young University has a website designed specifically to provide resources for couples preparing for marriage. It is the Before Forever site. Its URL is http colon forward slash forward slash marriageinfo.byu.edu. Before Forever provides comprehensive and ready-to-use information out to outlines to help LDS couples better plan their future marriage. Before Forever is not a dating service and not a counseling center. The site offers publications such as Enzyme articles, books and speeches about various marital and premarital topics, worksheets about different premarital and marital issues, and news and information about marriage and family events. Third, another Family Studies website contains the survey that President Bateman told you about that I've been involved in called the Relationship Evaluation or RELATE, which you and your partner can complete online and receive back within a few minutes online feedback on the strengths and work areas in your relationship. RELATE is designed for unmarried or newly married couples and we will soon have adolescent remarriage and mature adult versions available for people like me. Also, it will soon be available online in Spanish, we hope uh, sometime early in fall semester, and in Portuguese. Relate's URL is, again, http colon forward slash forward slash relate.byu.edu. I'd encourage you to go, we, our, our site happens to be down right now, and so give us a few days to get it uh, back up. We're having a little trouble with uh, with our server and everything, but I'd encourage you to look at these sites um, and to use other church information to make these decisions. Our son Matt recently married a, a wonderful young woman from Oregon, and as my wife Linda and I were driving to the reception in Oregon, we reminisced about our own courtship and marriage. And the more we talked, the more I remembered how immature I was when we, we got married. Uh, Finally, in bewilderment, I asked Linda, why did you marry me? Her simple answer was, I saw potential. <laughs> As we search for a mate with whom we can spend the eternities, therefore, we would do well to remember Elder Richard G. Scott's counsel that mirrors my wife's comments. He said, I suggest that you not ignore many possible candidates who are still developing these attributes, seeking the one who is perfected in them you will likely not find that, per that perfect person, and if you did, there would certainly be no interest in you. <laughs> These attributes are best polished together as husband and wife. That you may marry the right person in the right place at the right time is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Our dear Heavenly Father, we're very grateful for this opportunity we've had to gather together for this devotional, and we're grateful for the leaders and the members of the church that inspire us and with their teachings and with their guidance. And please bless us that we can continue to feel thy spirit in our lives and that we can always be worthy of the promptings of the Holy Ghost and that we'll be obedient to these promptings. And please continue to bless our leaders that they can be guided by the spirit and bless us that we can remember thee in all that we do. And I say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Love and Marriage Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity. By study and by faith, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.